I'm Abby Nemec, and this is A Time for Horses. Many people have sighed for the good old days and regretted the passing of the horse. But today, when only those who like horses own them, it is a far better time for horses. C.W. Anderson You're listening to a podcast about people and horses. Each episode, I take a look at a true story that connects somehow to horses, horse people, or the horse business. I'll tell you the story, sure, but I'm also going to tell you why I think it's a story worth telling. So, set the cruise control, step onto the treadmill, pick up a pitchfork, or pour another cup of coffee. I've got a story to tell you. Episode 6, Persistence of Vision. This episode brings you the conclusion of the story that started in Episode 5. Last time, I told you about a man by the name of Edward Mybridge, who'd taken an interesting route from his native Kingston-upon-Thames outside London, England, to San Francisco, California in the middle of the 19th century, where he had become somewhat of a household name, for more than one reason. If you haven't listened to that episode, you might want to go back and listen from the beginning of this story. You'll find it at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Occident. We'll wait right here till you get back. How do you know when something is real? I mean, really for real. You might be thinking you believe it when you see it with your own eyes, right? Because your own eyes won't lie to you. Maybe. My mother was a professional artist, and when I was a little girl, I did something that many children do when they are surrounded by immensely talented adults at home. I played at what she did, which was mostly drawing things. I loved it, but one of the things that I found especially difficult was when Mom would say, draw what you see, not what you know. What she was saying was that my mind was messing with my drawing, somewhere between my eyes and my pencil. What I was seeing with my eyes got adjusted to meet the expectations of my experience. This is what's going on when a small child draws a blue stripe at the top of a paper to represent the sky, and a green or brown stripe at the bottom to represent the ground. Until the child's understanding has been corrected by some helpful adult, the sky will continue to be at the top and the earth at the bottom. The child's mind takes the sensory information from the eyes and converts that into a sort of best guess of how to represent it in a drawing. This is one of the peculiar tricks that the mind likes to play mostly because it's trying to process and make sense of the world around us. These perceptual phenomena, the mind's tricks, can cause problems if they get in the way of seeing what's really there, but sometimes the illusion is helpful. Two of these phenomena relate to the story of Edward Mybridge. First is the phi phenomenon, spelled P-H-I after the Greek letter, This is a pretty powerful illusion, and it is responsible for the way that your mind sees a sequence of still images and turns them into movement. The mind takes in the information from the eye, and then where gaps exist, it automatically fills them in. You employ the phi phenomenon when you thumb through a child's flipbook and turn a sequence of still images into motion. Each drawing is slightly different from the last, so when given this sequence of images, the mind fills in the gaps to provide the only explanation it can, which is to assume motion. The other phenomenon that relates to this story I find interesting because for a long time it was assumed to be responsible for the way we see motion in still images. This little trick of the mind has been called an afterimage, but it's also known by the clever-sounding name persistence of vision. Simply put, persistence of vision is the brief image of something that appears behind your eyelids when you close your eyes. Historically, the simple explanation was that this delayed image sort of filled the gap for you during the shift from one flash of a still image to the next. It was a simple explanation, 
and easy to both see and understand. So, it was readily adopted. I'm sorry to say, though, that the human eye sees multiple after-images when the first one disappears. Some of these are negative images of the thing we saw, and some are positive images of it. The first positive after-image doesn't actually appear until about 50 milliseconds after the original image disappears. But in a typical motion picture, we're viewing the motion at 24 frames per second, which leaves a gap of only about 40 milliseconds between the different images. That means the after-image created by the mind actually appears after the next image in a motion sequence. And so, persistence of vision really can't be the thing we are seeing between the still images in a sequence. This fact was shown to be true roughly a hundred years ago, and even though psychologists who study the field have long since given up on persistence of vision to explain how we see moving pictures, people around the world and across the internet still declare that we see motion from still images because of persistence of vision. Persistence of vision exists, of course, but it's not what we think it is. Our idea of the phenomenon and how it connects to the illusion of moving pictures persists because the idea makes sense to us. We believe the thing that's easier to believe until something really powerful comes along to change our minds. And that is the theme of this episode. Last time, I told you the story of the various events leading up to the first photographic image that stopped motion, taken in 1872 by the famous landscape photographer Edward Mybridge. The subject of the image was a very fast standard-bred racehorse by the name of Occident, who belonged to the railroad tycoon and former governor of the state of California, one Leland Stanford. The capturing of this image was possible because Mybridge had already mastered the art and science of photography of his day. He understood how to capture a highly detailed image on a glass plate through years of practice. He understood the function of the camera lens and how multiple lenses could be used to capture two images on one plate. He had done hundreds, if not thousands, of these photos for the popular stereoptic cards that people would view in three dimensions through a special viewer called a stereopticon. Mybridge was an interesting character. Since suffering a traumatic brain injury as a young man, he had never really had much of a social life in the sense of forming close or lasting friendships. We know from court records The story of his trial is in our last episode, which you can find at atimeforhorses.com forward slash Occident. If you haven't listened yet, here's your incentive. In any case, we know from court records that people who knew him both before and after the injury reported a dramatic change to his personality. He had been pleasant and agreeable as a young man, but after the accident had become unpredictable, even temperamental. Edward Mybridge, who had had considerable success in sales as a young man, came to prefer working independently, and socially he kept to himself. In today's lexicon, you could say that Mybridge was sort of a hacker. In his time, he was known as an artist, but he also thought of himself as an inventor. He was always looking for a way to improve on something, always trying to squeeze that last little bit of performance out of a problem. That habit was a key factor in freezing Occident's trot mid-stride. The other thing that made this image possible, of course, was the support of Leland Stanford. Stanford wanted a picture of one of his racehorses in motion, showing all four feet off the ground. When Leland Stanford wanted something, he would spare nothing in his efforts to achieve it. He set Mybridge up at the Union Racetrack in Sacramento, ready to spend whatever it cost to produce the picture that he wanted. In Mybridge, he had the man who was ready to do whatever it took to produce that picture. It was a match made in technological heaven. At this time, the state of the science of photography still used what's called the wet plate collodion process. Under ordinary conditions, a wet plate required a couple seconds of exposure time 
to create a clear negative that could be reproduced into a decent positive image on paper. Mybridge set up a white background to capture as much sunlight as possible and used double lenses to direct twice as much of that sunlight onto the glass photographic plate. This cut the time needed to capture the image substantially. He built a clever wooden shutter device that would open and close in a small fraction of a second, and the job was done. For now. The image proved Stanford's point, that a trotting horse in motion had an instant in its gait when all four feet are off the ground. We call it a moment of suspension. In the 1800s, they called it unsupported transit. Now, people have created images by hand since before recorded history. As a matter of fact, originally, drawings were our recorded history. We use them for communication. They tell visual stories in the moment or for the future. Over time, some of our images evolved into written language. Others would come to be more pictorial, and we would create carved and sculpted work as well. The creative arts are an important part of our historical record. They record both the things we do and the way we think. And humans think about all sorts of things. Other humans, activities of daily living, and animals, horses in particular. Now, imagine the thinking that would go into deciding how to draw a horse in motion for the first time. The problem is that if you can't stop movement, you can't stop time, what you see is going to be limited to those things that happen at slow speed and close range. You may be a prehistoric hunting-gathering nomad with a herd of semi-wild horses milling around about you. You may be an Assyrian, carving a frieze that depicts your king, Ashurbanipal, hunting a lion from a chariot drawn by a pair of horses. You may be a Scythian, carving a belt buckle in what is now southern Russia. Or you might be creating a series of sculptures of women playing polo in Han Dynasty China. Your experience of watching horses move is going to be limited, because the horse moves pretty fast. You're going to know how they look starting and stopping, rearing and leaping over things, because those things happen slowly. You'll know what the walk and trot look like. But the faster gaits of canter and gallop are a bit of a mystery if you've only seen them in real time. You're also going to see the bounding gait of smaller animals and think that it's much like the postures of a slowly moving horse. Whether you believe the horse has a bounding gallop or not, you might draw it that way because you don't know a better way to represent the gallop. It's your best guess as to what's really happening. When that guess is repeated for enough centuries, artists of the future will begin to arrive at the idea that a horse's natural gait is a bounding gallop. In the study of art history, this depiction is known as the flying gallop, and it's applied to many animals, bulls, antelopes, goats, and the horse's cousin, the onager, are all on the list of creatures erroneously depicted in a flying gallop or one of its relations. In the true flying gallop of East Asia, the hind feet are extended behind the animal together in a pair. They form a sort of scalloped W shape with an upward curve where the limb connects to the body and another one at the bottom of the limb below the hock. The hind hooves are upturned to the sky. The forelegs reach together to the front in a graceful downward arc. In some cases, the animal's body is extended so far that the back is arched and limbs reach to the front and back in a nearly straight line. Imagine a horse playing Superman. Closely related to the flying gallop is the modified flying gallop, which shows less extension of the limbs and spine. This is a more Western Asian and pan-Mediterranean depiction, dating from the time of the Mycenaeans around 1500 BCE until the middle of the 18th century. The modified flying gallop looks as though the horse is hopping over a small stream or something, all four toes point toward the ground. 
The last depiction is a motif called the grounded gallop. This position, with the hind feet flat on the ground and the forefeet lifted and extended forward, is often seen in pieces that show pairs of horses pulling a chariot, or horses starting a race, or even large numbers of horses in battle. It's easy for the artist to draw or the sculptor to create, and it's a very dramatic posture to show the horse. It looks a bit like a horse rearing onto its hind feet, but holding its forelegs out to the front. This looks as though the horse is about to jump from a standstill into a gallop. As Europeans began to regularly travel the world and return home again in the 18th century, representations of the horse did as well, and the Far Eastern motif of the flying gallop was brought new again to Western Europe where artists of the period adopted it in their effort to capture life in motion as best they could. Grounded, flying, or modified flying, the horse at speed was depicted in this outstretched Superman gait. And so it was that people in the 19th century knew what they saw because of what they had seen. They knew how a horse moved because of the way it had been depicted in art that was otherwise very realistic. The gates that had been shown in drawings, paintings, and sculptures were a form of motion that made sense to them and could be easily understood. They could not unsee what they had seen. And it was this context into which Edward Mybridge and Leland Stanford were about to enter. Following the work done at Union Racetrack in 1872, in which Occident became the first horse to be photographed at the trot, Mybridge and Stanford were confident that the feat could be repeated and improved upon. They set up another studio at the Bay District Tract in San Francisco the following year. One of the struggles that they resolved was the timing of the shutter release on the camera. Mybridge rigged a thread to run across the track such that the wheel of the sulky, the two-wheeled cart pulled by the horse, would trigger the release as it passed by. This way, Mybridge could be sure that the horse would be directly in front of the camera. Occident was back in the frame in 1873, as was another harness horse named Abe Edgington, and although Mybridge was finally able to produce some reliable images of them, he didn't print many copies, and he didn't distribute them. He took some images to newspaper offices to show but did not leave them there. It wasn't yet possible to reproduce photos in print, such that the pictures themselves could have been included in the newspapers, so it may not have been caution as much as practicality that led Mybridge to keep the pictures. A professional photographer wouldn't give away his work for free if it didn't benefit him. There would be other times in his career when he wasn't so careful to keep his advancements to himself, but this time he was. In any case, He reported the news, which spread around the world, that a horse had been photographed in motion. In the end, the pictures they did catch were critically limited by the available photochemistry of the time, which was just too slow to reliably record anything other than these fuzzy one-off images of trotting horses. It would turn out that Edward Mybridge would have his hands full for a few years in any case, It was the years of 1874 and 5 that had him tied up in court defending himself against the charge of murder, and then traveling to Central America on professional exile, after he got off on the grounds of justifiable homicide. The project was officially on the back burner for the time being. You can imagine that the sources I had to draw from to tell you this story are many and varied. There were expert studies of the flying gallop, examinations of the psychology of vision and art and head injury, many histories of photography and the Union Pacific Railroad, and many biographies about Edward Mybridge. It was a challenge to decide which books to read, because there are so many, but in the end, I settled on the 2013 book The Inventor and the Tycoon, A Gilded Age Murder and the Birth of Moving Pictures, by Edward Ball. It's pretty clear Ball is a fan of Mybridge, but he tells the story of the man's life in great detail, beginning with his youth in England and carrying on through the trials and tribulations of his personal life, as well as his relentless pursuit of innovation in photography. 
If this story captures your interest, there are any number of books, articles, and other resources out there to learn more. I've listed a few of them in the show notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash persistence of vision. You can find Ball's book online at amazon.com in Kindle, hardcover, paperback, and audible audiobook editions. Edward Ball can be found on the web at edwardball.com and on Facebook, he is at Edward Ball Author. If you happen to find yourself in Kingston-upon-Thames, you might want to stop by the Kingston Museum to have a look at the Mybridge Collection. Their Facebook presence is Kingston Museum and Kingston History Center, with an ID of at Kingston Museum UK. On Twitter, they're at Kingston Museum. During the few years after Occident trotted into history, Leland Stanford began to be really curious about the movement of his flat racing horses as well. They're even faster than the harness horses, which use the symmetrical two-beat gates of trot and pace. Flat racing horses are ridden by a jockey, and they use the gallop. This is an asymmetrical gait, and we know now that its cycle has a long, single phase of flight. In 1874, a French scientist by the name of Étienne-Jules Marais was published in the magazine Popular Science, in which he described new research he had done identifying the order of the footfalls of a horse in motion, including the gallop. This lit Stanford up, because while they now knew the order of footfalls, they knew neither when and whether there was a moment of suspension, nor when and how, the legs would bend and straighten. He wanted pictures. Let me give you a quick refresher about the differences between the gates. In the trot and pace, the horse travels basically the way you do when you run, except that they use their legs in pairs. In the trot, it's a diagonal pair. In the pace, it's a lateral pair. They run from one pair of legs to the other, with a moment of suspension in between. It was this regular, recurring moment of suspension, which in those days was called unsupported transit, that the original images of Occident and Abe Edgington sought to capture. In the natural gallop, the cycle of the gait is not symmetrical, and based on which way a horse is leaning or turning or looking while it's galloping, we use the word lead to identify the order of footfalls. The cycle starts with the outside hind foot, This is the one on the outside of the turn, then the inside hind, then the outside forefoot, then the inside fore. We say that last foot is the leading leg because it's held in front as the horse gallops, and the horse is said to be on the lead of that leg. The horse on a left-hand curve gallops on the left lead, and vice versa to the right. After the leading leg lands, the horse gathers all of its legs up underneath itself and coasts through the air for a considerable distance before that outside hind comes down again. This cycle is very different from the bounding gait we now call the flying gallop, in which the horse is depicted running like a dog. This gait has two moments of suspension, very much like what a horse does jumping over a series of small jumps. At the base of the first jump, both hind feet land together and push the horse into the air. The two forefeet land together on the other side, and then as the hinds come forward under the animal to land again, the forefeet lift off. That second moment of suspension between the lifting fore and the landing hind is very short if it exists at all. When a horse is bounding over something, it has a long flight between the hind legs landing and the fore, then a short flight between the forelegs landing and the hind. Let me repeat, this isn't the gallop. It's a horse jumping. In the natural gallop, the only time all four feet are off the ground is between the leading foreleg and the opposite hind. So I won't say the flying gallop doesn't occur at all. It just doesn't occur the way the artist of the 19th century thought it did. And as Leland Stamford was becoming increasingly certain, it doesn't occur on the racetrack. He was getting to a place where he really wanted hard information so he could understand how to make his horses faster. Now here's another little tidbit about this story that I liked. Leland Stanford 
had become absolutely infatuated with his horses. Remember, he got involved with them as respite from the relentless pressure of the railroad business. And if you're a horse lover too, you'll know the feeling of falling hard for them. Stanford had accumulated nearly 7,000 acres at the Palo Alto stock farm and had built an astounding enterprise for his breeding and training operation. He hired a trainer and 150 staff and housed them on site. He built an enormous stable, laid down eight training tracks, and of course, had a special train car built to transport the horses as needed. You can imagine that this farm became a small town of its own, with wheelwright and blacksmith shops and a dining hall. Of course, he also needed horses for a place like this, and he sent his trainer around the country to buy the best breeding stock he could find. One in particular was a three-year-old who was too lame to race. Prevailing wisdom gave him little value. But Stanford picked him up as breeding stock. Palo Alto historian Steve Steger put it this way, quote, In 1876, he visited one of the finest horse farms in the East and purchased several horses for his new Palo Alto farm, including an undistinguished-looking stallion named Electioneer. In Electioneer's 14 years at the Palo Alto stock farm, he sired 166 colts that could trot the mile in less than two and a half minutes, considered fast times in those days. Nine of the 13 world record champions bred at Palo Alto were his offspring, including Sunal, Arion, and Palo Alto. Yet the racing world had ignored Electioneer's potential. Only Leland Stanford had recognized what the horse might do. End quote. Electioneer turned out to be one of the most enduringly successful studs in the history of the breed. Even into the beginning of the 21st century, his name was on the sire side, the male parentage, of all the pacing record holders, and the trotting record holders were all descended from two of his granddaughters, Princess Royal and Cita Frisco. The horses weren't just property to Stanford. He was so interested in them and what they could do that with his trainers he developed a proprietary conditioning protocol, eventually known as the Palo Alto system. They built a solid foundation of long, slow distance training with speed applied in sprints, and they started with easy work on a specially designed kindergarten track for the young horses. They had special recipes for their food and careful attention to their feet. They also had rules on the farm about how the animals were to be treated, always with gentleness and care. This is quite common today, but for the time it was revolutionary. Keep in mind that the trotting horse at this time was trotting at about a 2.20 pace, or one mile in 2 minutes 20 seconds. This is about 25 miles, or 40 kilometers per hour far too fast to clearly see the legs moving. At the time, the galloping horse was running in the neighborhood of 140, or closer to 36 miles, 58 kilometers per hour. The stride of one of these horses in motion might surprise you. The galloping horse covers so much ground in one cycle of the galloping stride that each foot would leave hoof prints more than 15 feet apart. To capture even one image of a galloping horse, first of all, Mybridge needed a much faster photo process. Even with a trotting horse, they had struggled to get any image on the wet plate, and the galloping horse was moving that much faster. Conveniently, at this same time, the next generation photo process was evolving. The photos of Occident and Abe Edgington were made in 1872 and 1873 with the wet plate collodion process. In 1871, a new process had been published in the British Journal of Photography that would come to be known as dry plate emulsion, or dry plate gelatin photography. At first, the dry plate process didn't offer much in the way of better speed or image quality. The initial improvement was that the plates were more durable and would last longer after exposure before they had to be processed. This was a big deal for the professional photographer, who had previously needed to take his darkroom with him everywhere, but it wasn't yet the whole solution for Mybridge's problems. 
And so it was back to work in 1876. Because Mybridge struggled with the crowds of spectators that they collected trying to work at the track in San Francisco, this time they set up a photo lab at one of the training tracks at Palo Alto. It was important to Stanford that they capture the horse's entire stride so that they could be sure they were going to get the body mechanics of the whole cycle. For this, they needed to take a long sequence of images with each pass of the horse. Mybridge put a row of cameras equal distance apart along the trackside. They built a shed with a shelf for the cameras at the right height above the ground. Opposite the cameras, they built a whitewashed wall, angled upward, so that it would reflect as much of the central California sunlight as possible across to the array of cameras. They also marked numbered vertical lines along it that would show behind the horses. By this time, changes had been made to the dry plate process. A gelatin-coated dry plate was available on the commercial market by 1876. By then, it had been refined to allow for a much faster image than the wet plate. Within a couple of years, it was found that by heating the gelatin coating, the plate could be made so sensitive that an image could truly be captured instantaneously. This was one of the major innovations that opened doors to the modern age of photography, and these new fast plates entered commercial production in the 1880s. This was the big event that made the latter part of Edward Mybridge's career possible, but it wasn't quite ready yet. In Palo Alto, Mybridge was careful to keep mum on the question of what photo process he was using, protecting it as a trade secret. Whether he was working with some early dry plate process of his own, or he had developed some next-generation wet plate process, or he had just really maximized the output of the current system, we don't know. We do know that he used wide-aperture lenses to get as much light as possible. We know that he controlled the focus of the image by carefully managing the distance between the horse and the camera. He was a master of attention to detail. Somehow, he got split-second images when everyone else was still using multi-second exposures. There were 12 cameras, the whole battery of cameras, the whole array, intending and planned to capture 12 separate images in sequence. With the extra light available from the white background, as well as the wide aperture lenses and Mybridge's trade secret photo process, he was able to shorten the shutter speed to the point where motion could be stopped, reliably. And so, in 1877, although he was still struggling to collect enough light to get clear images with the sort of detail he wanted, he had a process and a camera that would do the job. Mybridge was finally able to focus on the other parts of this work. One important factor was the need to make his shutters faster. We're talking about a horse galloping by at 30 miles an hour or more, across the view of an immobile camera. The shutter time had to be incredibly short, and the setup had to be improved so they could catch that image at the right time, when the horse was right in front of each camera. If you've ever tried to take a picture of something in motion, you know that you can get a pretty good image of the thing moving as long as you follow it with the camera, but you get a blurry background. These cameras were sitting still, which means they had to have faster shutter speeds than had ever been done before. We're talking minuscule fractions of a second, literally a split-second image. Edward Mybridge was lucky in that Stanford gave him access to the railroad company engineers, and with their help, he developed an efficient mechanical shutter for his cameras. They also devised an electromagnetic trigger for it that would make the shutter release very fast. He would have to get down to something less than a five hundredth or a thousandth of a second in order to record something moving as fast as a racehorse. He photographed Occident repeatedly in 1877, first in San Francisco and later at Palo Alto. He published a number of unretouched images of the California Wonder and publicized the pictures as well. A set of instantaneous photographs of Occident won a gold medal at the 12th Industrial Exhibition in San Francisco in the fall of that year. 
The strings that Mybridge had used at the beginning that were triggered by the sulky wheel rolling over them worked perfectly to trigger the electric shutter release. According to Edward Ball, Mybridge said, quote, The horse takes its own picture. End quote. This was ideal for capturing the harness horses, but the shutter wouldn't be triggered by the horse passing by alone, without wheels. They couldn't use a string for the horse to gallop through because it wouldn't be possible to control the tension on the strings at the time the shutter's released. I also think the horses wouldn't like running through a string, much less a dozen of them. Running over the mats on the ground would be enough of a challenge. The solution was obviously to devise a hand trigger for the electromagnetic shutter release. But then, if they were going to release all of the cameras at consistent intervals, they would need to design something very clever. Mybridge worked with one of the engineers, John Isaacs, to come up with a rotating drum with a dozen pins, like a drum on a music box. When it was cranked around at a steady speed, it would fire off the 12 shutters at predictable intervals as the horse ran by, making quite a noise. As you will see, dear listener, this is the key innovation that made all the difference. As far as we know, Mybridge did not get paid for his work during this time. He was doing the work for his own curiosity about the process and because he knew he was on to something. He may even have thought he was doing it for ownership of the pictures or some future commission. We do know that he duplicated and sold the images produced during the project. He was, after all, a professional photographer, and he had a very compelling subject at hand. This was part of how he did his work. He would develop a process or a routine, take pictures, and then sell the pictures quite lucratively. But on this project, it's important to note that Stanford, who was curious about the content of the images, was footing the bill for everything. So Stanford's financial backing was there from beginning to end, as were assistants, trainers, a jockey, the setup at the track, and the horses. But the evidence would suggest that Mybridge was not actually paid by Stanford while he was working. We'll come back to this later. Leland Stanford, meanwhile, had pre-approved all the expenses of the project but he was continually distracted by violent uprisings of his railroad workers. This was related to the Great Railway Strike of 1877 that shut down the Baltimore and Ohio Railroad, and Stanford's Central Pacific was not immune to problems. The uprisings made it impossible for Stanford to stay closely involved day to day, but the photography project continued. It was Mybridge the showman who moved these exciting developments forward. This would be the beginning of a 15-year roller coaster ride of events that would give him the high of the world-class entrepreneur known across America and Europe for his one-of-a-kind creations and the devastating low of unwitting loss when he turned his back on someone he trusted and then shared too much to the wrong person. Under Mybridge's strict direction, the team at Palo Alto completed the first usable test sequences of trotters in May of 1878, and then by June 11th, they recorded the first full 12-camera sequence of a trotter. He wasted no time, and in just a few days, convened a whole train car of reporters at Palo Alto to stand at the edge of the track as the trotter Abe Edgington thundered past the clattering cameras. The plates were processed immediately, and within 20 minutes, the reporters were holding the pictures in their hands. They were absolutely elated, and the news hit the presses right away. Just a few days later, Mybridge filed his patent application for a method and apparatus for photographing objects in motion. His patents, 212864 and 212865, were granted in the spring of 1879. He also filed patents in England, France, and Germany. Mybridge had created something absolutely new, and he was determined not to let it get away. The following month, July of 1878, Mybridge published six 5-inch by 7-inch cabinet cards titled The Horse in Motion. 
Each of the cards in the series held either six or twelve images per card, of the horses Occident and Abe Edgington trotting, Mohammed cantering, Sally Gardner galloping, and two others. These are the first-ever series of sequential photographs of an object in motion. The images of the six horses were reproduced and sold to the public, to wild acclaim across America, in Britain, and in Europe. These six horses launched the trickle, later a stream, a mighty river, and eventually an absolute flood of motion pictures. Now, this was amazing from a technological standpoint. You can easily see that. And you can certainly understand what Mybridge and Stanford were thinking about as these events unfolded. Stanford was busy taking care of the railroad employees' revolt, which had started in 1877 and would just not go away. But between riots, he would return to Palo Alto and immerse himself in understanding the gates of his beautiful horses. Mybridge was on a branding spree. He was promoting the images everywhere he went. He was publishing and selling cabinet cards. He was patenting everything he could. But at the same time, this was published in the San Francisco Chronicle. Quote, The stride of Abe Edgington and of the still more celebrated trotter Occident was depicted in a clear manner in ten photographs as each passed a space of ground measuring some 21 feet at a 220 to 224 gait, and the strange attitudes assumed by each animal excited much comment and surprise, so different were they from those pictures representing our famous trotters at their full stride. But that which was the action of the racer at full gallop, some of the delineations being seemingly utterly devote of naturalness, so complex and ungraceful were many of the positions where on the racetrack beauty, elegance, and symmetry are all so combined. End quote. In other words, these horses looked nothing at all like the horses depicted in the artwork of the day. In the Daily Alta, California, it was said, quote, Mr. Mybridge has completely exposed the fallacy of all previous ideas on the subject. Several of the positions which the horse assumes while in rapid motion were so comical as to excite the risibilities of the spectators. End quote. And this leads to the part that I think is pretty amazing. Almost immediately, Following the publication of Mybridge's images, the use of the flying gallop as an artistic depiction began to disappear. I spoke before about how it seemed that because the artist couldn't actually see the motion of the horse at speed, they had done a sort of best-guess approximation. Since this was the depiction that they had always seen in art, it was the depiction that they saw when a horse moved. And truly, while the general public had a hard enough time believing that a horse's legs landed in sequence from back to front, the artists, who had invested so much of their imaginative energy in creating a mental vision of the canter or gallop, really struggled to let go of it. The situation wasn't a question of seeing is believing. It was more believing is seeing. In The Psychology of Visual Art, author George Mather discussed the challenge of this transition. Quote, None of Mybridge's photographs of galloping horses show them in a flying gallop pose, and many of the artists who became familiar with Mybridge's work evidently spotted their error. The flying gallop quickly disappeared from artistic depictions of galloping horses to be replaced by a pose derived, it seems, from Mybridge's photographs. Edgar Degas' early paintings do employ the flying gallop, but his later work is clearly inspired by Mybridge's photographs. End quote. However, it wasn't by universal acclaim that this happened by any means. Mather continues, quote, Not all artists were so convinced about the artistic validity of the poses revealed by stop-action photographs, and they raise interesting questions about the nature of truth in paintings. 
The French artist, Théodore Géricault, was famed for his depictions of horses, and his work included the traditional flying gallop pose, ventre à terre, or belly to the ground. Auguste Rodin defended Géricault's error as follows, and this is Mather quoting Rodin, Yet I believe that Géricault, rather than the photograph, is correct, because his horses have the appearance of running. This comes about because the spectator looks from back to front. End quote. So essentially, it was Rodin's argument that because Géricault was depicting something that seemed like running to the viewer, it didn't matter if it was truly realistic. In a sense, this ability we now had to show by photograph what was happening in reality freed artists from the burden of having to do that. Mather goes on with this, quote, In Rodin's own sculpture, St. John the Baptist, the figure's pose seems unnatural. St. John is posed as if in mid-stride, with his right leg forward and left leg back. Both legs are straight, and both feet are flat on the ground. Rodin felt that stop-action photographs of a man in mid-stride, which show the back heel or foot raised, appear unnaturally frozen. End quote. Rodin thought that the photograph gave an appearance of being petrified in a pose. According to Mather, he also said, quote, It is the artist who tells the truth, and photography that lies. For in reality, time does not stand still. And if the artist succeeds in producing the impression of a gesture that is executed in several instants, his work is certainly much less conventional than the scientific image where time is abruptly suspended. End quote. By being released from the expectation to create more and more realistic depictions of action, the artist was suddenly freed to be apocryphal. They could imagine and create things of beauty and things of representation that no longer had the social duty to be accurate. One more comment from George Mather, quote, These artists draw attention to the fact that photographic evidence may not correspond to our conscious experience of movement. If the aim of art is to be true to human experience rather than to photography, then photography should not be relevant. End quote. Of course, there were some artists who had the opposite reaction to the age of instantaneous photography. Frederick Remington was born in 1861 and studied art at Yale University in the late 1870s. He came of age during the years when Mybridge's work was having its greatest impact, and you can see this in his work. He is most known for his illustrations of the cowboy life of the Great Western Prairies, where he traveled extensively to document the war on the Native Americans during the 1880s and 1890s. His naturalistic style owes much to the photography of horses in motion. I've put a picture in the show notes that makes this clear. You can find it at a atatimeforhorses.com forward slash persistence of vision. For Edward Mybridge, it was a very busy time. Almost right away, he held viewings during which he projected the images of the horses using a magic lantern, which you would recognize as a slideshow. These were relatively new, in that they used both a lens and a protected flame that burned oxygen and hydrogen to create a steady beam of light. This was the first way in which an audience would sit in a common space and view a projected image together at the same time. Previously, picture viewers had been an individual affair that someone would engage in alone. Like a podcast, I guess. More intimate. Now, the press made sure to give Stanford ample credit for the images. The project would not have happened without the investment that he had made, and he would give interviews of his own on the matter. The two men even moved forward with the project, doubling the number of cameras, and as a result, doubling the time they could capture as well. Mybridge photographed more than two dozen horses and a parade of all sorts of animals in front of the cameras. They collected images of dogs, cattle, a goat, a deer, and a boar, and even humans, and built a solid collection of sequential images of moving animals. 
by the time they finally rolled up the motion photography project in 1879, it was fairly obvious that these images were ideal to be viewed in sequence. The viewing of images to mimic movement had been done for a long time. Any number of different viewing devices had been invented for a person to peer through a viewfinder and see a sequence of drawings, that, because each one was only slightly different from the previous, would benefit from the mind's natural tendency to merge them together and create the illusion of motion. It was the Phi effect that made this happen, of course. These moving image devices became popular in the 19th century and went by many names. The phenakistoscope, the zoetrope, phantasmoscope, phantoscope, bioscope, and even optical magic discs. Of course, these all relied upon drawings. A few people are recorded as having mentioned the obvious, that the split-second images of moving animals should be reanimated through one of these devices. That was no surprise. But then it was also not surprising that it would be Mybridge whose mind would make the leap to projection. It took some considerable trial and error and a few prototype efforts in the interim, but in January of 1880, Edward Mybridge gave the first motion picture show in history to an invited audience at the Stanford Mansion. Before long, the Moving Picture Act went on tour, playing to paying audiences. Always a fan of the complicated name when he could create one, Mybridge called his device the zoopraxoscope, taken from the Greek for animal motion viewer. In 1881, Mybridge assembled all of the images from the motion studies and printed five copies of the collection, which he called The Attitudes of Animals in Motion. He gave one to Stanford and kept the other four. Edward Ball reports that it was at this time that Stanford paid him the sum of $2,000 for his work, although other sources suggested it was paid up front. Mybridge also had all the equipment and the negatives, of course. Regardless of timing, the payment would be a key point before long. In various news reports, credit for the work was given more or less equally to the two men. Mybridge for the innovation, knowledge, and sheer skill to complete the work, and Stanford for the conception, oversight, and vast commitment of resources to the project. In all, the Palo Alto studies had cost an equivalent of nearly a million dollars in today's funds, so this was not to be taken lightly. Even Mybridge was quoted as having said the work was collaborative. This leads us to one of the more curious chains of events in this story. It occurred while Stanford, his wife, and his son Leland Jr. were in France on vacation. Edward Ball reports it this way, quote, in July 1881, by telegraph from France, Stanford told his lawyers to transfer patent interest in Mybridge's photographs and equipment to the photographer. The two had agreed on a price, $1, and the deal was done. End quote. Mybridge would shortly travel to France as well, to share his advancements in science and technology with the leading researchers of the day. He and his zoopraxoscope were received with acclaim. He presented for the most distinguished audiences in France and then in London, where Albert, Prince of Wales, was in the audience. During the time that Stamford and Mybridge were both in Paris, the two men seemed to have met only once and barely spoke. The tycoon was not pleased that it was Mybridge drawing the large crowds. When he returned to California... Stanford teamed up with a local printer by the name of Jacob Stillman to prepare his own book from the Palo Alto images, and he called it The Horse in Motion. Mybridge was not given credit. As a matter of fact, the book gave full credit to Stanford and Stillman together, and the actual photographer's name appeared nowhere. You won't be surprised that Mybridge was infuriated by this. In fact, in a move that was pretty audacious, even for him, Mybridge took both Stanford and the book's publisher to court for copyright infringement. 
You also won't be surprised to learn that the temperamental English artist lost the lawsuit against the ruthless robber baron known to the press cartoonists as the octopus, and it drained him financially and emotionally. It was 1883 when, on a second trip to Europe, Leland Stamford also faced a devastating loss. When his son, Leland Stamford Jr., was overcome by a terrible illness and passed away. In their grief, Leland Stamford and his wife Jenny made the decision to use their vast wealth to found a university on the grounds of the Palo Alto stock farm, in memoriam to their beloved son. They would call it Leland Stanford Jr. University. It's still there. The famous photographer had lost his benefactor, and while his show was paying his way, it was not lucrative. He was lucky, in 1884, to meet the Philadelphia artist Thomas Eakins, who helped him find his way to the University of Pennsylvania, known as Penn, where he would construct a large studio with portable camera arrays that allowed them to be moved about at will. He would finally be able to employ the new, fast, dry-plate photographic process. His subjects, again, included various animals, but he became fascinated with the motion of people, particularly nudes. We can be pretty certain that his interest was more practical and scientific than lewd, or even artistic, but the images included people running, jumping, dancing, sitting down and standing up, boxing, and a favorite subject for many of the early motion photographers, blacksmiths hammering at an anvil. The work produced during this period was vast, providing an enormous archive of images for the university's art, medical, and veterinary schools. Of these images, he chose 781 plates, each comprised of 12 to 24 images, for a collection that he published in 1885. Never shying away from complex names, he called it Animal Locomotion, an Electrophotographic Investigation of the Consecutive Phases of Animal Movements, 1872-1885. He had 1,500 copies printed, but, go figure, the book did not sell well. He could really only do one thing to break even, and so he took the zoopraxiscope on the road again. These images would engrave the name of Edward Mybridge in photographic history, but in his lifetime, it was all he could do with them to break even. So when, you may ask, did our hero find a way to record motion sequences longer than just a couple of seconds? How did he join with the other great inventors of the age and combine his rapid-fire photography and projection with the innovative celluloid film, that began to replace glass plates in 1889? How did he bring his equipment into commercial production to provide an income for his retirement years? How was he able to give voice to his living images by adding Mr. Edison's sound recordings to his movies? I'm sorry to say, dear listener, that none of these things would actually be done by Edward Mybridge. Early in 1888, Following a presentation he gave, just a few miles from Thomas Alva Edison's New Jersey laboratory, Mybridge had a brief meeting with the great inventor. As Edward Ball tells the story of these events, the two men discuss the photos, the image sequences, the moving picture projection, and the idea that the zoopraxiscope might be combined with Edison's phonographic recordings and bring to life the technology that we would eventually know as talkies. Mybridge seems to have been under the impression that there was goodwill between the two of them, and he seemed confident that a collaboration would come to pass. Apparently, Edison didn't see it the same way. As he had a reputation for doing, he used what Mybridge told him to his own advantage, fairly ruthlessly. He bought a book of the pen images and set them up in the library at his lab, where no one could come or go without looking at them. The two men corresponded, but never met again. Just when Mybridge thought he had really accomplished something and made a professional connection that would bring him into the technological aristocracy, the rug would be pulled from under him. 
Ibridge traveled across the U.S., Britain, and Europe, giving talks and projecting the moving images from the pen motion studies. He was universally acclaimed. The short motion pictures that he showed were many and varied and were unlike anything that the public had seen before. The zoopraxiscope was even given its own building at the Chicago World's Fair in 1893. In typical style, Mybridge named the auditorium Zoopraxographical Hall. This was really the first commercial motion picture theater, although it seems not to have really attracted much in the way of a crowd. Whether it was in the wrong location, in the amusement section rather than the more scientific area of the grounds, whether the tickets were too expensive, the modest audiences didn't really like the pictures of naked people leaping around, or it simply suffered from a bad name, it was unfortunately not well attended. Perhaps even the super short moving picture subjects were beginning to lose their novelty. They had no story after all, just motion. Story would come later. In any case, following his acclaimed talks abroad, the experience in Chicago would once again leave Mybridge feeling deflated. In the meantime, Thomas Edison had set his best engineers to work on tools and a process to produce and display their own stop-action motion sequences. The Edison camera and the first viewer, known as the kinetoscope, were made possible by George Eastman's breakthrough development of celluloid photographic film in 1889. The new Edison system was prototyped in 1893 just as Zoopraxographical Hall was hosting dwindling crowds. It standardized the 35mm width of celluloid film and added sprocket holds that would advance it at a steady rate in both camera and viewer. The rolls of celluloid film made it possible to record images by the hundreds rather than the dozens. It would be a few years before reliable projection, manageable camera sizes, and later the talkies would appear on the scene, but the technology of silent moving pictures was on its way. Leland Stanford passed away in 1893, leaving a tremendous endowment to Stanford University. The Palo Alto stock farm stayed active and was a leading producer of racing stock for some time. In fact, it's been said that the horses saved the university in its early years. Again, I'll quote historian Steve Steger, quote, When Leland Stanford died, the federal government and others fought the wishes of his will, and it would be several years before his vast fortune was released for the benefit of the young university. Jane Stanford was able to finance a portion of the ongoing costs of running a college from her personal funds— but it was the breakup of the stock farm and the sale of its horses that helped Stanford University survive. End quote. Today, Stanford is a private research institution, known as one of the world's finest universities. In 1895, as the technology he had developed was being passed by and the younger inventors were taking it forward to the future, the 65-year-old Mybridge went home for the last time to Kingston-upon-Thames. He moved into a house with two of his cousins and a housekeeper. He gave a few more talks and wrote two books. The first is the one he is most known for, the 256-page Animals in Motion, published in 1897. He also produced The Human Figure in Motion, the shortest piece he had done yet. These both benefited from the new technology of printing halftone images. Even to the last project, Edward Mybridge took advantage of the newest way to reproduce images in print. Edison Studios, founded in 1894, made over a thousand films before it was broken up in an antitrust lawsuit in 1915. Edison died in 1931. Florado Helios Mybridge, who innocently motivated the murder of Harry Larkins, last heard from his father in 1883. He lived until 1944 and was a gardener in Sacramento when he passed away after being struck by a passing car. Mybridge lived his last years at home in England and worked with his local librarian to put his papers in order. 
he wrote a will, including two notable bequests. He left about a thousand pounds to the Kingston Library to purchase artistic and scientific books, and his photographic negatives and plates, as well as the zoopraxiscope itself, went to a group planning a museum. The Kingston Museum today proudly hosts the Mybridge Collection, and I owe a great deal to their website, kingstonmuseum.gov.uk, in my preparation of this story. On May 8, 1904, Edward Mybridge was in the midst of constructing a giant replica of the American Great Lakes in his backyard in Kingston-upon-Thames, when he collapsed suddenly and passed away. When he had been born in 1830, photography was in its infancy. Images of life and landscape could only be recorded through artistic renderings in drawing, painting, or sculpture. These images were realistic. They seemed real. Viewers learned what they knew about the world by looking at these representations and took the images to be true depictions. What they encountered in life was literally modified in the mind to agree with the artistic image, especially when it wasn't possible to actually confirm the reality. Until Mybridge captured images of horses in motion, the universal understanding was that a horse ran like a dog. Now that seems preposterous to us today, because we have never known a time without motion photography. But his work, quite literally, changed the way we saw things, horses in particular. Horses were, after all, the fastest thing in our lives, until the railroad train arrived. Leland Stanford, the railroad tycoon, wanted to see everything possible about the horse in motion, and Edward Mybridge showed it to him. Each of the two men had a vision of something that didn't exist, and because they both persisted, it became a reality. I hope you've enjoyed this story about the man who split the second and how it changed our view of the world forever. I'll be back in a few weeks with another story, this time a modern-day story about a decision made for all the right reasons that had the potential for catastrophic consequences. If you're listening to our show on the web, you may already know that our website is atimeforhorses.com. And you'll find the notes for this episode at atimeforhorses.com forward slash persistence of vision. In the meantime, you know what makes a good podcast great? More listeners. So please, if you haven't done so yet, do the three R's. Go to your podcatcher of choice and rate, review, and recommend the show. That's how people out there in the interwebs can find us. You can like, follow, or add us, and then share, tweet, or tell someone the old-fashioned way that you are enjoying our show. If you're new to the concept of listening to a podcast, I'm really glad to hear it. You can subscribe to the show for free and never miss an episode. Just go to atimeforhorses.com forward slash subscribe for links to the various places where you can find us. Thanks for giving me your ear space. I'll see you next time. <laughs>